Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 23rd. It's morning in California, in San Francisco, late afternoon in the United Kingdom, in the Cotswolds. Uh, as so often uh, this year and, and uh, in many previous years, uh, technology is dominating the headlines. Surprise, surprise, the Wall Street Journal continues to make waves with its revelations about Facebook, about its bad behavior. Uh, the news today is that Facebook's chief technology officer has quit. He's stepping down in 2022. His name is Mike Schroff. A Shropfer, and uh, he also ran the company's artificial intelligence initiative. God knows what Facebook, given how badly behaved they have been generally, God knows what they're going to do with artificial intelligence. Um, AI continues to be in the news in many other ways. Elon Musk, one of its big champions and pioneers, the um, the the founder of Tesla, has uh, announced that he. Um, he plans a, what's called a humanoid robot uh, for his uh, self drive for his uh, electric smart car company, Tesla. Uh, this issue of AI has become so important, so profound on so many fronts that it's attracting some of our finest, not only nonfiction, but fictional writers. Uh, Kazuo Ishiguro, one of my favorite writers, has a magnificent new novel out about AI, about its limitations, challenges, and problems, Clara and the Sun. And we've been talking a lot about technology and fiction, and particularly AI in the show over the last couple of weeks. We had the Greek uh, uh, ex-finance uh, minister, Yanis Varoufakis, on the show, imagining a world of AI which benefited people rather than uh, just tech companies. We also had earlier uh, last week Dave Eggers on the show. Of course, he's the author of The Circle. He has a new book out, The Every, a much more dystopian take on the future of AI and big tech. And uh, some of our other best writers are throwing their hat into the ring. I'm thrilled today to have one of my favorite writers, Jeanette Winterson. She's a, a UK-based most of you will know her as a novelist, but she's also made, herself, made a name for herself as a nonfiction writer of essays. She has a new book out, 12 Bites, uh, How We Got Here, Where We Might Go Next, which is a book of essays uh, about AI. It comes on top of uh, her novel last year. I don't know if it was last year. It seems Everything seems last year. Uh, Frankenstein, uh, which uh, was a finalist for the Booker Prize and deals with many of the themes in the book. And I'm thrilled that Jeanette is joining us from her beautiful hey. house uh, in the Cotswolds, or certainly, uh, Jeanette, uh, that garden behind you looks magnificent. I hope you have robot gardeners, do you? <laughs> no, I've still got a human gardener. Um, but, you know, one of the things that does interest me about technology is that it might mean that we can use less chemicals uh, on farms because we can have little robo weeders that can go between the rows and get rid of the things that we don't want instead of having to spray everything with chemicals or pay for costly humans to weed it by hand which we can't do so it's not all bad but here it's completely organic it's still done by two humans 
Uh, Jeanette, uh, again, you don't need me to tell you this or your followers, uh, but you've always gone against the grain on lots of fronts. And most of the writing now um, tends to be skeptical, if not outrightly hostile towards tech. But this book, 12 Bytes, um, it is not a book which is hostile either to technology or to artificial intelligence, is it? You're ambivalent, you're open, you're hopeful. Is that fair? Yes, Andrew, that, that is fair. Um, it may be because I have an optimistic temperament, which I think is, is the best and the worst of me. It's exactly the same thing or the same problem. And I don't see the point of going down the dystopian Armageddon, the end is nigh route, partly because I'm suspicious of it, because it's a trope of human thinking. It's always been there. Uh, it's been there before AI, uh, before big tech. And it just seems to me that where we are now has amplified and, and highlighted this kind of dystopian doom-laden part of us, the part that really longs for death uh, and in a way wishes it were all over and believes that nothing can be done and that everything that happens will always go wrong. And I know humans have a, a, an amazing track record of inventing things that then go wrong. You know, we split the atom and what do we do? We have a bomb. Great idea, guys. But it doesn't have to go that way. And I suppose that's that was one of the things that I wanted, Andrew. I mean, in the way that you do, um, it, it, it's it's looking at things hopefully with you know a clear eye um whether like you with the future or democracy and and thinking look it's not over till it's over and if if we if we do a sort of inverted magical thinking and secretly we don't believe that any of our efforts will change anything it's the same with climate breakdown then it will all go wrong and we'll just have the satisfaction that, oh, yes, we were right. We told you it would all go wrong. But that's not necessary, is it? I know you don't believe that. Well, one of the things, Jeanette, I loved about the book is that you bring in all your preoccupations, the preoccupations of all your work. I think three things in particular, the issue, of course, of feminism, the issue of religion um, and the issue of the body and its significance. Yeah. Uh, maybe we'll start, if there is a hero in these essays, it's Ada Lovelace. She's a hero of mine as well, a remarkable woman. Um, you begin the book with, with Ada. Uh, what is it about Lovelace that makes her so interesting and important, uh, not just uh, as a, uh, in, in terms of the history of feminism, but in, in terms of the history of artificial intelligence and technology? Yes, well, I'm sure some people will know that um, Ada was the daughter of Lord Byron, and she'd just been born when Byron went on that fateful holiday in Lake Geneva with the poet Percy Shelley and Percy Shelley's wife, Mary Shelley. And it was on that holiday that Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, the, the, the book that really is the, is the prophetic book of the future. The we, modern we, Prometheus, as it, yes, as it was subtitled. absolutely. The idea that you would steal, uh, in that Prometheus's case, fire from the gods and you'd be punished for it. But what she saw was that we would create a life form. Her life form was made of the discarded body parts of the graveyard. Our life form is made out of the zeros and ones of code. But it was a prophetic book. And on that holiday, as well as writing Frankenstein, Mary Shelley argued day and night with Byron. He just had his baby daughter, Ada. He was very disappointed because she wasn't a, a glorious boy, as he put it. He never saw her again because he never came back to England. But what he did do uh, was instruct 
Ada's mother, that Ada must go nowhere near poetry, which Ada's mother didn't mind because she'd had enough of the Byronic blood in the family, the mad, bad and dangerous to know. So she did something really unusual, which is that she hired a maths tutor for little Ada. Now, at that time, even, even, even the poshest, fanciest, richest women uh, were not schooled. The boys went to school and they certainly did maths and science and the girls did not. They might do languages and, and maybe a bit of Latin, learn the piano embroidery, but absolutely not maths. But lo and behold, Ada, to keep her away from poetry, got one of the most famous mathematicians of the day, Augustus de Moore. He was a friend of Boole. You know, all Boolean algebra is the source of every, every iPhone, every piece of kit, every software that you're using now works on Boolean mathematics. So Ada, she's thrown right in there and she discovered that she was rather good at it and she enjoyed it. And not long after, she met Charles Babbage when she was 17. Babbage was Lucasian um, professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge, a post, by the way, although uh, held by Isaac Newton um, has never yet been held by a woman. Stephen Hawking held it, but no women yet have been a Lucasian professor of mathematics. But Babbage, of course, had the idea that he could invent um, what would be a machine computer, because at that, that time... Yeah, he called it the difference engine, didn't he? Did. he there's a great picture of it, yeah, because computer at that point just meant a human person who was doing computation, calculations, usually the things you needed for a, a take logarithm tables so that you could work out where you were at sea um, or how, how big a beam or how big a span was going to go on your building. He thought, we this is very boring, repetitive work. And, of course, the genius of the Industrial Revolution was to mechanise repetitive work. Um, and so he thought... Maybe I could do this with numbers. But of course, even though he got the equivalent of nearly two million from the British government, he couldn't build the thing. It's like this steampunk Victoriana of a computer that would be fired by coal. Um, it was all sort of le levers and bevels and cogs and pistons. But Ada looked at it and she thought, hmm, if he could build it, I could. And this was the great word, program it. It's the first time the word had ever been used. She had to invent computing terms because there were no computers so she invented that they were doing a kind of thought experiment and this was an imaginary world really living in but ada um absolutely understood that if this thing could calculate numbers i.e arithmetic it could actually calculate the relationship between anything and that was a huge leap and she also developed the word operation which would mean the relationship between two things that would be impacted upon um, by the by the process of the computer so she was really up there um, i mean more than up there i mean Really, when it comes down to it, if you compare Ada with Babbage, Ada has much more historical significance. Babbage founded, perhaps, or invented the idea of computer hardware, but Ada did the heavy lifting. Yeah. She invented the notion of software, which is probably, Absolutely. in terms of the history of computing, probably the most remarkable invention of all, isn't it? I think so. I think so. And she, she did understand it for what it was. And of course, they both worked out that the punched card system that was being used on the jacquard loom, which is really the expression of a pattern uh, as a series of holes in a card, would be exactly what you would need for the computer, which is a huge leap. Because if you remember, the punch card system carried on until the 1980s. And it's exactly what Bill Gates and Paul Allen did um, when, when they were developing their software, Microsoft. 
soft. It was it was bits of holes in bits of paper. So these they were they were ahead of their time. That the, the weight of the present, the Victorian present, was just too heavy for them, um, and they couldn't get there. And of course, they didn't have. You can't do computing without electricity, which was still poorly understood. So they were just they were just a hundred years too early. So by the time Alan Turing comes along, Fletchley Park after the war, uh, and he's thinking about what computing science will do. He goes back and thinks about Ada Lovelace. And in, in 1950, he writes a paper which has a piece in it called Lady Lovelace's Objection. And he's the first person, actually for 100 years, to take Ada seriously. And he says... Which hmm, may, uh, again, I don't want to focus exclusively on the politics of gender and sexuality, no. but it, it may not have been a coincidence, no. uh, Jeanette, that uh, Turing, of course, um, was a homosexual... Uh, eventually was persecuted, committed suicide uh, after being persecuted by the state for that. And of course, uh, Ada was uh, was female. Is there any coincidence here in this connection, Turing, Ada, and their ability to think and rethink uh, computing? Well, I think you're exactly right, Andrew. I think I think that 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 personal connection really was there. You know, Ada, for all her privilege as an aristocratic woman, and that really did help. You know, if she'd been a washerwoman, she wouldn't have had a maths tutor. But for all of that, she was an outsider. Um, and Alan Turing was an outsider. You know, he had to con conceal yeah. his sexuality, conceal his personality. And I think because of that, he was both open-minded, you know and sympathetic to somebody who just didn't fit the system in the same way, so this remarkable woman. So yes, absolutely, both of them able to, to think in a very clear way um, and not a prescriptive way about and, how uh, would develop. One of the things that you focus on in the book, which is probably the, still the key issue, it's something that Musk and, and, and many other people are thinking about now, is this idea that artificial intelligence can have a soul, that it can think for itself. You remind us that Ada very famously said that software, AI, well, she didn't have that term, but software or her notion of software could never originate anything. Did Turing agree with her? Because uh, Turing, of course, is also famous for as the, the inspiration for the Turing test, the idea of um, uh, computers being able to mimic human language. Uh, this, this, this issue of origination is really so important isn't it Jeanette? Yeah. It is so important and it's, it's a tricky question. Um, Ada thought not. She thought that uh, computers would be able to come up with uh, astonishing answers but they would always have to be programmed by us, that we would always be in the mix, that they wouldn't originate anything. And in fact, we, we, So we would be, to, 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 to sort of borrow some Aristotelian language, we would always be the first movers in, in AI. Yeah. Yeah, and absolutely necessary. But of course, in following on from her famous father, uh, you know, poetry being, being the highest art, certainly in England at the time, um, it was, Ada, that was one place where perhaps she did have a blind spot. She could not conceive of anything that was a, a machine or had been programmed or what, doing what she would call originating work, a creative genius, so loved by all of the romantics of which her father you know, was the exemplar. 
Um, Turing did not agree. He thought that we really, really, we were asking questions about what is creativity. Um, and he understood that actually everybody is built on a data set. We're all programmed in some way, humans just as much as machines. And it, what we do at the moment with our intelligence is that we are ingenious in our combinatory powers um, and we make new forms, new holes. But whether we should say that computing power will never be able to do that, computing technology, computing intelligence, I think it will. I think it will. Because I don't think there's an absolute discrepancy between what computers will soon be able to do and what humans do in terms of creativity. But I could be completely wrong. You, um, you write a lot about AI, but you also write about something called AGI. What's the difference? Yeah. Uh, and why is that an important difference, uh, AI and AGI, Jeanette? I know the terms are a bit clumsy, aren't they? I mean, I don't even like artificial intelligence. You know, that was coined by John McCarthy in 1956. I'd rather think of it as alternative intelligence. But AGI is supposed to be artificial general intelligence. So AI, you know, you know, because you've written about this a lot, as humans as tool using animals, that's what we are. And AI is a tool. It's all narrow goal. It's 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 specific. It doesn't multitask. Neural networks aren't good at multitasking. They like to do one specific thing really well, like crunch numbers look for patterns um, they don't do what we do you know we can do 50 things at once even there's even stupid ones of us stupid humans can really do all sorts of things that computers would find actually very very hard um, but the idea is that when you got artificial general intelligence the computer will not only be able to update itself set its own tasks be a participant in its programming, in the questions being put to it. Um, but it will also by then have passed the Turing test uh, and it will have something that we would call perhaps self-reflection, self-awareness. Um, it doesn't have a limbic system, you know, we do. It only has a neural highway. So when I talk about it as an alternative, an alternative life form by that point with AGI, um, which I think the lack of Elon Musk certainly does agree will happen. Then we've really we've really gone past Homo sapiens, haven't we? We're then sharing the planet, and we will have to become, I think, a hybrid form ourselves. I think transhuman is the new mixed race. Yeah, that is one of the most um, intriguing things in the book. Um, everyone will, of course, know you for your for your wonderful first book. I loved it when I first read it. Uh, we're of a similar age, similar generation, different yeah. background, though. Oranges are not the only fruit. Um, and then you wrote Sexing the Cherry and also Written on the Body, which I particularly like. This book, 12 Bites, rethinks the body, doesn't it? You've always been interested in the body, in sexual terms, in aesthetic terms, in spiritual terms. And I couldn't quite make out whether or not you see in 12 Bites and AI our opportunities to escape our bodies or to celebrate them more? Are you yourself ambivalent about the impact of AI on bodies? And, you know, you've got this interest, for example, in, in Ray Kurzweil, who you uh, write about. Uh, we had a guy on the show recently called Sergey Young, who believes that we can live to 200. Mm. You're, you're interested in this. You're open to it. What does this do to the aesthetics and philosophy of the body? Well, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because 
at the moment, you know, with artificial intelligence, either it can be embodied or non-embodied. We think of the robotics are embodied, uh, operating systems are non-embodied, and of course they could be simultaneous, uh, that, and that will certainly be in the future. You can have your little bot uh, as a 3D object, but you can also have it as an operating system. You could literally travel with it and leave it at home, which would be quite fun. Um, so it's the idea of being multiple, uh, not caught in one body as we are, which is something that has... So we escape the binary. I think at one point in the book... Yeah. You brilliantly say fuck the yeah. binary yeah i think it will because i mean of course again this is where we screw it all up um ai does not need to be gendered it certainly doesn't have a sex a biological sex it doesn't need to be binary at all um the worst the frightening binary which is something you talk about is you know it's the us and them situation which we do not want certainly not with agi we do not want to be the them in an us and them situation but i think for the body it's Everybody feels both the absurdity of death. Um, nobody really wants to die. Just at the point where you get some knowledge and self-awareness, you drop dead. I mean, what kind of a system is that? And I think we've always looked to religion to say, oh, well, of course, your body's not the end, end of the world, the end of the story. There is somewhere else to go. Religion has, has posited this both as a, as a, as a comfort, uh, but also as a certainty for some people. And we're very used to the idea that we, the essence of you, me, is not contained in this body even non-religious people were so used to that idea. And now science is really saying the same thing and saying, well, actually, we can probably extend um, the shelf life of this body by making it fitter, stronger, healthier. But if there was a time when we, we could upload consciousness, some, or, or some of it or all of it, then we'd be back in all those, those, all those shame and dreams and all those stories, wouldn't we? Of today I'll be a greyhound, tomorrow I'll be a, a woman, the day after I'll be a man, I can choose my body. And of course, for every religious tradition, the idea is that we leave this body behind, but something that is us, recognizably us, continues. Um, so that really does fascinate me, that science and religion, uh, which have been so opposed throughout their history, um, now seem to be on the same track in terms of the, um, the approximation of the physical self, the self made of meat, and that we may indeed be able to both um, blend with um, AI and perhaps supersede where we are now completely. This may be an evolutionary moment when we look back. 300,000 years of Homo sapiens, then what? Is it, is it that we blend? And then do we become entirely no longer biologically based? It's possible, Andrew, isn't it? Everything's possible, uh, Jeanette. Um, oh, look, where's the alien Pentecostal? Yeah, so uh, yeah, as everybody knows, who's a fan of yours, who's read your books, you grew mm. up in an unusual family uh, in Manchester, um, in the UK. Uh, your your parents were Pentecostals, um, and uh, your your writing kind of oozes, I guess, a rejection of Pentecostalism, as you say. Yeah. Um, that is, of course, Pentecostalism is, is a particularly narrow, intolerant, binary kind of religion. You're suggesting that AI will free us from that binary, uh, uh, binary uh, metaphysic, that, um, that, that it will, we will go from Pentecostalism to basically to Buddhism um, or to Gnosticism, to... Uh, to a world in which God or the spiritual is everywhere. Is that fair? 
I think that's fair. I mean, we're already very comfortable uh, across the world, again, whether you believe or you don't believe, with the idea of a, of a of non-embodied beings. Lots of people in this world pray to a sky god every day um, and believe they have their most intense, profound relationship with a non-embodied personage, or if, if that's what you want to call it. You know, there are people all over the world who still think they're surrounded by angels or spirits. You know, in Ireland, not so long ago, um, you'd have everybody saying, yes, the little people are with us. You know, we we, we still do have um, a lively fascination for a non-embodied world that lives alongside us and around us. Now, we could say, well, that's just, that's just the craziness of the human mind. Or we might be saying, well, look, this is the only way we had to describe it until we got here, until um, we got to the moment where we thought, ah, we're not actually trapped in these bodies. This is not the end, maybe. Um, and so it, it, it's possible that we're telling the story backwards in a way that we always knew we would get here. And if it doesn't come to climate breakdown and we don't, as usual, mess everything up, this could be the evolutionary leap moment. And that's why I'm excited about it. And of course, AI doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have a skin color. It doesn't have a faith. It doesn't have a race. And that should make us as humans reflect on our own determination to endlessly categorize and label and pigeonhole people usually in hierarchical ways, which have brought us to this point of violence and breakdown. What AI is saying is, why are you doing this? It's completely unnecessary. So I'm hoping there'll be questions reflected back to us from the technology that we're creating, but that when will develop into a technology of its own. That's what I hope. But as, you know, as we said, I'm optimistic. Um, do you see AI then as a sort of, as, as a post-enlightenment phenomenon? One of the people who comes out of your book beaten up a little bit and he perhaps <laughs> deserves a, a little bit of a beating is the enlightenment the, the sort of perhaps the the founding philosopher of the enlightenment rene descartes um yeah. with his focus on 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 the body and on the binary do we need yeah. to get beyond the, the the male philosophers of the enlightenment the locks the descartes the hobbes if we're to get to this place you want to be uh this 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 uh gnostic buddhist future I think we do. I mean, for all for all the advances of the Enlightenment, you know, one of the tragedies was um, replacing the idea of, of, of an organic, holistic universe, which humans were were in uh, part of, with a with a mechanistic universe. You know, New, New, Newton's mechanics that it was clockwork, uh, that it was like a piece of automata, uh, and that we would discover its laws and they would work perfectly well. Uh, and that and that that I think wasn't helpful. Um, it's, it's what allowed really mistreatment of animals because of course Descartes famously thought that animals didn't feel pain and they couldn't because only rational creatures could feel pain. I mean, you know, some clever guys get away with a lot of stupidity, don't they? I mean, you know, you, we all know that animals feel pain, but he he really led the way towards this, the terrible treatment, mistreatment that we've seen. So I'd be glad to see those splits and those binaries go. Yes, I'd be glad to see human exceptionalism start to take a back seat, that where we're suddenly lord of all, and the only thing that matters is us. I hate that. We go, we're going to have to get a, a, a more humble perspective probably at the same time as getting as realizing how smart we are that we've got this far 
creating our intelligence, our alternative intelligence, but are we smart enough to get to the next stage? And that is the bit that I really doubt. If we like the chimpanzees, you know, we just we just go on being warlike land grabbers, savage and hierarchical, then I don't think we will get past this. You know, we need to be a bit more like the bonobos with whom we share the same amount of DNA, um, you know, who are inclusive, communistic, peace-loving and non-hierarchical. So we don't have to go on being chimps. Maybe we need a new ideology, Jeanette, um, for Maybe this world. Um, this is something that's come up from time to time in, in the show. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Italian, I think she lives in New York, Silvia Federici. She's yes, a yes, very influential yes. feminist thinker, and she's come up yep. a lot on this show. Ece Temokuran brings her up, Sarah Jaffe. This idea of, of love being the new ideology. Um, mm. You touch on this in the book. You don't mention Federici. Um, no. but, but can love be the heart of this post-Descartian world? I think it has to be. I mean, you know, that, that's because, you know, with the, the, with the Descartes, the, the, the famous, I think, therefore I am, um, and, and his, his distinction between a thinking thing, a res cognita, uh, and everything else, res extensa. So either you're a thinking thing, i.e. us and God, or you're just everything else, which is kind of a lower life form. That's been terrible. And, we, you know, we've learned, haven't we, lately, it's probably from the 70s, really, 70s feminism onwards, that you do need emotional intelligence. Men do, women do. We do need a compassionate connection. Um, and we also know from neuroscience that you never have a thought without a feeling. That head-heart uh, binary is its just rubbish. We know it now. It hasn't served as well, and it's false. And so that's why I think, yes, this is a good moment. And that's why the, one of the essays in the book is called I Love therefore I am, which is really a call right. to, to bring back um, a really energetic, not, not wishy-washy, not sentimental, you know, not Hallmark cards and, and Mills and Boone and horrible romance and sort of teenage pouting, but love which is, which is fierce and strong and difficult and powerful uh, and that we bring in with our intelligent, rational side. Because if we don't become whole, then I think the fragmentation that we're experiencing now of people and planet uh, will overwhelm us before we can get to the next stage. Yeah, so your your alternative to Cartesianism is compelling. But as you say, uh, Jeanette, we probably will screw this up because that's what we do as a species. Uh, I, I think well, you're, the, you're, you know, you're, you're an optimist and you think how to fix democracy, how to fix the future. Well, but, but they're broken. So we, I've always said we do things, Jeanette, we do yes. two things very, very well as human beings. We, we break things and then we fix them. Uh, and to me, yeah. the biggest danger is that someone will end up owning AI. And I'm talking to you, as you know, from yeah. Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, and there are lots of people out here really want to own AI. There's a, there's a new platform called OpenAI, which uh, is in, in classic Silicon Valley language, says, our mission is to ensure that artificial general intelligence benefits all of humanity. We've heard that one before from social media, from Silicon Valley, from people like Mark Zuckerberg. The new Zuckerberg, perhaps in AI, is this guy Sam Altman who runs yes. um, who, who runs Open AI. How aggressive do you think, given the history so far of Silicon Valley, given the various fuck ups from Google to Amazon to Facebook, how aggressively do we need to fight the Sam Altmans of the world who essentially want to privatize AI and own it and articulate it? Um, 
in their in 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 their language in terms of how they think humanity can benefit from it yeah i mean we can we can really do you know, with with without the 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 autocrats and the tyrants uh, especially the ones who wear t-shirts and pretend that it's all all democratic and they just want the sharing economy uh, and a better world for everyone you know we've got um such distortions of language really now haven't we that it's very hard uh, for people to know what anybody means when they start talking about things because apparently it's all sharing it's all for the good of all it's all democratic and it's so not and i think yes it's for all of us to, to call this out and call it by its name what is it what is really going on and of course i would like to see on on, on you know, every counter initiative Yes, more women. Yes, more people of colour. Yes, more diversity. And of course, yes, more people from the humanities, because we can't leave it all to the computing scientists and the physicists. You know, lovely though they are, again, it's this data set problem, isn't it? You know, we know that data sets are biased and that they then amplify bias when, when we feed them in, into these supposedly neutral machines. But as we're all data sets, you ju the more of that you can get around the table, the more likely you are, I think, to, to pick up the errors, to change the discourse, to affect the conversation that's why it needs to be more of us yeah and that's why uh, you got your your new book out uh 12 bytes how we got here where we might go next it's um classic jeanette winterson a wonderful um treatment in, in essay form of the history of ai of its possibilities of how it's about to revolutionize religion uh, our sense of the body uh, and the future of humanity, perhaps even redefine what it means to be human. Jeanette, wonderful new book. Uh, congratulations on that. Everyone needs to Thank read you. it. I think it's out next week in the US. It's already out in the UK. Um, what else should people be reading in these strange times where uh, we're still kind of stuck at home, Jeanette? Well, I'm assuming they've read you anyway, and if they haven't read How to Fix the Future or How to Fix Democracy, you know what? You should read Andrew Duncan. Well, thank you, Jeanette. No, seriously, they shouldn't just have you on the podcast because, um, you know, it was after we met at that conference uh, in Holland uh, and, you, you know, you very kindly gave me a book and I was really fired up by it. And you see, that's how we start conversations, isn't it? Um, we read something, then we think for ourselves, we talk about it, it gets bigger and bigger. So it's very important to have that. So I want everybody to, to go out there and say, if you haven't read Andrew, come on, do it, because it will just give you such a wide general knowledge about what's going on and some good ideas so there's you and then there's two i'm reading now that i love everybody to read one is because china's on all our minds and i'm reading this the the, the shortest history of china i don't know if you can see that uh, yeah Divan, i think um, a, a wonderful title a wonderful yeah. title of a book and it's really great, you know. If you just if you just want to do China 101 and catch up quickly, never mind Blinkist, which is an abomination. Uh, I don't know how they ever got startup money because it's just a dreadful thing to do with books. Just read it all the way through. It won't take you long. A couple of hours and you're done. You know, you've got China. And then the other one I'm reading, which I've just started, uh, which is called A New Science of Consciousness: Being You. And I think that's Anil Set, isn't it? Set or Set? Yeah, S E T H. S-E-T-H. Um, and I'm not very far into this, but I'm really enjoying it. So that's what I've got on my table at the moment for fun. So you know, like I said, the more we read, the more we know. And the more we know, the more we can contribute. Well, certainly the more we read of Jeanette Winterton, uh, Winterson, the more we know. Her new book, 12 Bites, is a wonderful read. Congratulations, Jeanette, on the book. Continue oh, writing, continue thinking and throwing your 
your your trademark bombs, your essential for our uh, for our future. Keep well, and we'll talk again Thank in the not too distant future. Thank you so much. Thanks very much, Andrew. Bye bye.